this is Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra from the History Department, and I am joined by Carrie Peffley from the Philosophy Department. This week, we're going to talk to Rushika Haig, one of our favorites. Uh, she is teaching on Humanities 1, and so we're going to switch gears from Freud, and we'll go and talk a little bit about the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, a graphic account of the martyrdom of two women from about AD 200. So stay tuned. Uh, so we have with us this week, Rushika Haig, and in the Humanities One team right now, I believe you guys are reading The Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. So mm-hmm. could you begin by giving us, our, our listeners, just a description of what, what that text is about? All right. So The Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas is a Christian account of two women who are martyred during one of the Christian persecutions under the Roman Empire. They die in the North African city of Carthage in the year 203. And this is a really good account we have. We have some many good accounts of martyrdoms, but this is a particularly good one. And interesting for a lot of people because it focuses on these two women who um, one is a a well-born young Roman woman. She's just 22. And then Felicitas is her slave, and um, they, Perpetua has just given birth, and Felicitas is pregnant, about eight months pregnant. And so they have been denounced as Christians, and they have been arrested, and are waiting their, their fate. So, Rushika, in the tale, first of all, I think in one of the introductions that we sometimes provide with provide to students, there is some indication that some of the material we have was actually maybe written by Perpetua. They think possibly that's a possibility that, and if it was written by Perpetua, that makes it one of our earliest Christian accounts by a woman mm-hmm. that we have surviving um, of Christians under persecution. So, and so if it wasn't written by Perpetua, then who is putting this together? Okay, so if it wasn't written by Perpetua, um, then there were other Christian writers who would write accounts of persecution and of martyrdom, and they were to intended to be inspirational, right? And these are really, you know both Perpetua and Felicitas are revered as saints in the Roman Catholic tradition and actually in the Anglican tradition too. And so this is an early account of these these people and showing what it's like if you are willing to risk everything, including death for your faith. Is there, so for those who think that potentially Perpetua at least wrote part of it. Um, Was that at all common that some of the people who were being imprisoned would write down bits of what they were saying, experiencing? Yeah, so one of the other ones we have is from Bishop Polycarp, Mm -hmm. and he killed with the martyrs of Lyon, a town in the south of France. And so, you know, early at this point, and for Perpetua and Felicitas, and also for the martyrs of Lyon, the persecution against Christians is kind of sporadic and it's localized. And so in 200 and then the martyrs of Leona before that, 
it's really the local governments who are pushing this. And usually persecution intensifies when there's something else bad going on. Sickness, earthquakes, storms, bad harvests, and people are looking for scapegoats. Um, and so there would be these sort of spurts of persecution that would happen. And so both the story of Perpetua and Felicitas takes part during, takes place during one such one in Carthage. And then this other one happened in uh, the 70s AD in um, Lyon, France. And so from that one, much of what we know about it is from the writings of Polycarp. And he was an elderly bishop in the church and he was taken in in this persecution. And they ask him much like Perpetua, they ask him to renounce his beliefs. And um, I'm not, I'm going to mangle this quote, but it's something along the lines of, you know, Christ has been faithful to me these long years. Why would I, you know, betray him now? Something along those lines. And so we do have other accounts. So it is possible that um, she may have been the author of all or at least parts of this. So Rushika, from your perspective, you've probably read this a few times. What are some of the key ideas, key themes that you hope will stand out to your students as they're reading it? I mean, I know what stands out to me, but um, I'm curious as to what you hope students will um, see in this text as they're reading through it. Well, I think, you know, the very obvious one, and it like sort of attracts students because they like this. They're like, yes, I'm on fire for Christ. I would be like this. I love her zeal, right? But I think that's we can be a little too glib with that because if you really dig into this and read this and you read about her martyrdom or any of the other ones, these are horrible, gruesome, gruesome events. And, you know, it's written about in this way, like she barely knows what's going on when she's being like gored by a cow. Mm -hmm. and then, you know, she, she helps the gladiator guide the sword to her throat. So like somehow she's in this like, ecstatic trance state she knows she's about to meet her maker and it's all so wonderful but if you kind of take that part away from it you think this is just kind of horrific right and she is leaving behind an infant and then you take the example of her slave felicitas who is hoping she'll have her baby early so she can be martyred with her friends and you know her prayers are answered it's a miracle and it, I think you can, I mean, you can read it on that level and certainly, but I mean, if you really think about it, this is kind of terrible stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that it should remind us of is how radical Christianity is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then there's all sorts of interesting things about Roman culture, right? So her poor old father comes to her and he says, you know, just give up this crazy Christian stuff. You have a son at home, you need to think of your family. And when you really understand Roman culture, you realize how radical that is too. And so he's the pater familias, the eldest male head of her family. And the pater familias was supposed to have the power of life and death over his family. Mm -hmm. And she's saying to him, no, I'm not going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And we're not, it's not really given to So one of the, interesting things is, you know, the father's the figure in this. We don't hear too much about her husband, right? Where, whatever he's doing, we don't really know. Um, but, so if he's in charge of her, probably he's in charge of Felicitas too, who is Perpetua's slave. Mm -hmm. And so we have 
both these women defying him and saying, no, we cannot call ourselves anything but Christians. That's pretty, it's pretty startling. That's pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that kind of begs an, another question, which is, I mean, the church must have been okay with women defying traditional sources of authority. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's a famous Roman writer who, in his condemnation of Christianity, dismisses it as a religion for people who aren't that bright, basically, and also <laughs> women and slaves, sort of. And the way he phrases it, he, he kind of think maybe he thinks that those categories are overlapping, or at least, you know, synonymous, perhaps. And so this is an idea that is floating around in the Roman world. We actually kind of see this in Augustine too, don't we? That's one of his initial issues with Christianity is he reads the Bible and he's like, well, it's not exactly Cicero, is it? (laughs) Like, like, I don't know. I'm not getting a lot out of it here. And so there is this idea floating in the Roman world that Christianity is a religion for those who, you know, are a little more simple, like slaves and women Mm-hmm. and the lower classes. Mm-hmm. And so in the story of Perpetua and Felicitas, we have this interesting thing that we have a well-born Roman woman who apparently, if she did indeed write parts of this or all of it, was literate. Mm-hmm. She's young. We assume she's well-married. And then, you know, she, she, her family certainly is well to do enough to have some slaves and so we have, you know, the noble Roman woman or the well patrician would be the right word, Roman woman, and then her slave. But both of them have a lot of, yeah, a lot of say in their lives, it seems like. And it does seem like their faith is emboldening them to go against norms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always liked the, that part of this particular story, that what you have is both women and slaves as these powerful figures who right, in some ways are going to be, right, they're, go- they're going to be martyred, so their life is about to end, but they feel autonomous, right? They are making yeah. the decision to do that, and that's just so striking. Well, and I think, too, as our team is looking forward to reading Howard Thurman, and I think about how he really tries to reframe Christianity as the religion of the dispossessed, mm-hmm. in some ways... I hear in his tones something that you're describing in the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, right? Where the church wasn't always the tool of the powerful to oppress the uh, underclass. In fact, it used to be a vehicle by which the underclass could exercise at least a limited form of agency and power. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think, um, I guess that's really one of the things that strikes me is that I think we need to remember how absolutely radical Christianity is, that it's something for women, it's something for slaves. Mm-hmm. It steps in and it says, you know that Roman practice we have of exposing infants? That's a terrible thing. And we, we're not going to stand for it. And so Christians would go and they would find these infants that had been exposed And if they were still alive, they would adopt them or find them a family, or they would baptize and bury them. And there's something 
extremely radical in what Christianity claims that everyone has value because we are made in our creator's image. And this, I think it's easy to forget that this is not a pagan assumption. This is not an assumption of the pagan world in any way, shape, or form. Well, and again, to connect it to Humanities 4, as Carrie well knows, we have been talking about Nietzsche this week, and we're about to enter into Freud. And what's very interesting in the context of Bethel, and maybe Carrie will talk about a different experience in her classroom, but there were definitely a lot of people in my classroom who had a hard time even imagining what Nietzsche was saying and the, the sort of morality system he was advocating, or it seemed, he seemed to be advocating, because they, the idea of the Imago Dei, like that's so ingrained in a lot of students. Mm-hmm. And so it's so interesting how they take that concept for granted almost without realizing how radical this used to be. I don't know, Carrie, do you want to say a little something about what your students were thinking? Yeah. It's definitely fun to talk about the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas immediately after talking with my students about Nietzsche. It's a, a little bit of a whiplash. But no, I think that's absolutely right. One of, one of Nietzsche's comments is like this thing that, and I think he would actually even agree to part of what you've said, at least, that, that, part, of that part of Christianity at the beginning was radically different, radically different. And now, you know, 2,000 years later, it's part of our part of common knowledge and even people who don't call themselves Christian still kind of know the lore of um and 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 it became and even very quickly I suppose after I mean after Constantine legalizes Christianity Christianity becomes an empire and then all of a sudden you have a conversation about okay well we're no longer oppressed now we are the empire what does that mean for those earlier stories, but I think those earlier stories were so profound in shaping Christianity, um, hmm. much to Nietzsche's chagrin. So one of the questions, of course, that I'm dying to know, Rushika, is as you are looking forward to teaching this with your students in Humanities One, will the question of should they or shouldn't they have recanted Will that come up? And if it does, how will you try to, I don't know, guide the discussion or maybe you'll take a hands-off approach? I'm just curious. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Should they or should they not have recanted? Well, I mean, it's a great chance to talk about the Donatists, right? <laughs> um, so there is that. I mean, I, I guess that might be, that's the first thing I think of is, because there are Christians who do recant under persecution. Yeah, so, so, so for our listeners who are not as well-versed as you are, say who a little say a little bit about the Donatists. Who are these guys? Okay, so this is a group, um, mostly in North Africa, where Perpetua is, and they are looking at people who, under persecution, do recant. They do kind of pull a Peter, and they're like, Christians, never heard of them, haven't been hanging out with them, nope, don't know anything. Particularly, they're looking at two particular groups, people who actually handed over church property, um, where we get, you know, our word traitor from, from the Latin, and which, you know, literally to hand over, tradire, and also particularly at priests who, when people came around, they said, mm, I, no, not me. <laughs> so what do you do with these people who then 
persecution, that wave of persecution has ended. They come back to the church and they're like, hey, guess what? Can I come home? And the Donatists said, no, absolutely not. They said, you have put yourself outside of the church and, you know, the rest of us didn't do that. And so this is completely outrageous. And then they even go a step further and they say um, that priests who had done that, that the validity of the sacraments then that they are administering is not valid. Um, that those are no good because, you know, they're, they're these sinful priests who have recanted their faith. And so the, the church comes down on the other side and says, hey, remember, we're not a church of saints, we're a church of sinners. Mm-hmm. And so if people are genuinely repentant, we need to bring them back in to the church. And I think that there is a powerful message sort of going ahead and then going to what Carrie brought up, like, what do you do then when Christianity is legal, when it's the official religion of the Roman Empire? And how do you keep this understanding that we are a church for our purpose is healing, our purpose is salvation, we're a church of sinners. And that becomes a lot harder when suddenly it's the official religion of the Roman Empire um, after Theodosius declares that that in 380. And you're like, who are these people? I mean, are they just jumping on the bandwagon because that's the new cool trend? Or so, I mean, it presents a lot of challenges. So you have this great shining example of martyrs like Perpetua and Felicitas. And then, you know, a hundred and some years later, 150, 180 years later, you're not really sure what you're getting anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, interestingly, I suppose also to connect it to Nietzsche leads to that sort of asceticism that starts Mm -hmm. the monastic tradition. And this happens in, it seems like quite a few religions as they shift from small persecuted religion to empire, they go from being martyred to, well, I no longer, I no longer need to martyr myself, but I feel like I should be sacrificing in some way. Maybe the story we get out of this is one of self-sacrifice. And so we get the monks and the hermits and um, the mystics who leave society to try to capture that somehow. Yeah. Well, that's a, I didn't even think about that connection. And I'm, I think that's a fascinating thing to think about, quite mm-hmm. honestly. And yeah. I, yeah. Ahead, I think even, even some of the early, um, I don't know whether um, Benedict actually said this, but certainly some of the early hermits um, would actually say things like, look, I can no longer shed my red blood for red martyrdom. Yeah. So I'm going to end up becoming a white martyr by giving up certain things because I can't be like Perpetua and Felicitas anymore, unfortunately. I'm sure Carrie knows about this too, that there is later on, after the Islamic um, conquests, there is a little bit of a movement in Christianity and they're like, hey, here's a great idea. We can go to Muslim lands and sort of try to martyr ourselves and, you know, go about preaching Christianity. And so this this whole idea of you know, dying for your faith doesn't go away um, the church, though, does come down on that and say, they say, they condemn it. They say, no, you cannot go and seek martyrdom. martyrdom. <laughs> so. But one could sort of understand, I mean, the other thing that strikes me when I read this uh, particular text is how 
excited they are. Um, and that level of excitement and fervor and zeal, um, you can see how it leads quite naturally to people saying, well, I want to do this too. I, maybe this is what we're supposed to do. Yeah. I just wonder too, for students living in the comfort of a westernized, fairly Christianized, at least in terms of culture world, like how they can connect to the idea of zeal and sacrifice. I mean, I wonder how they're going to relate to this story because quite frankly, if I'm just going to be frank, I mean, I find it a little bit more horrifying than anything else. And I do think about the, 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 the children, right? I'm throwing my hands up and, you know, the, the children, the children, but I, I just think, ah, oh, that I don't know. I, I don't know what to think about it. Yeah, I think it's a little hard to, as you say, we're quite comfortable to wrap our heads around. And I mean, I wonder if what part of the context is too, just sort of the Roman love of blood sport. Mm. That we are, I mean, yeah, we have football, but I mean, it's hardly, <laughs> it's hardly even close mm-hmm. to the kind of entertainments the Romans had where you would have, you know, exotic beasts killing each other, gladiators. And so, I mean, this is, the persecution of Christians is sort of just one, in some ways it's just one more entertainment, but both Perpetua and other accounts talk about how these persecutions, these martyrisms are so gruesome, they actually almost start backfiring. Mm-hmm. And there are people who see them and are actually brought to the Christian faith because of them. Mm-hmm. Just so fascinating. Yeah. You mentioned the, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, mm-hmm. Are there, how, this is a dumb question or maybe an overly broad question. How many of these sort of narratives of, of martyrdom are, are present from this time period? Um, you know what? I'm actually not really sure. Those are the two I know best, okay. but I know there are others. Um, but I'm not sure number-wise what we have. Okay. I'm just sort of wondering how you know whether individual areas of the world had their own sort of martyrdom story in the way that you know different societies had sort of tribal deities or or local saints or things like that. Um, and, and how many of these stories were, you know, Polycarp, presumably because he was a bishop, word of his martyrdom would have traveled a little bit more. But how much did this become a part of the formation of Christian identity is sort of my, I guess, my ultimate question. I think it comes, becomes a fairly big part that this is, this is pretty vital in shaping the church on, at that point and Christian's identity, because as you kind of said, you have these these later people who are saying, well, I can't be a red martyr, I can be a white martyr, I can give up things. The end of the age of martyrs actually sort of provokes a crisis in the church, which seems like a really odd thing to say, right? But if you know that that's your path, and you are convinced that you will be with God, then as gruesome as the in-between parts are, the end goal is very clear, right? So in some ways, I mean, as strange as it sounds, it's simple to be a Christian in the age of martyrs. 
it's much less complicated. You have very clear paths, right? Sure. Yeah. I know it sounds very strange, but, um, and I think the other thing we need to remember is that early Christians were very convinced that Christ was coming soon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, probably by the year 200, they're starting to wonder what soon means. But, um, but you know, the, those first couple centuries in the church, they have this very clear idea that, you know, the end will come soon. The second coming is coming, like, infinitely. Mm-hmm. And as you get further away, people start to realize that maybe our idea of soon is not necessarily God's idea of soon. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2020 wondering, wondering if we, you know, what does soon mean? <laughs> Mm-hmm. True. I just finished um, a book by the Japanese author Endo Silence. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Rushika. So it involves the story of a missionary to Japan in the 1630s. Does that sound right? Or 1660s or something like yeah. that? 17th century, sure. where the Japanese government was no longer tolerant of Christianity in the way that it had been. And so this missionary priest is faced with the decision of, do you recant or do you remain faithful? And it's, very, it's a very interesting tale. I don't know much about the author of the book, and so I don't know where he is coming from. But in the tale, part of the question about the priest uh, being willing to recant involves if he is willing to recant, he saves the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, sorry, if you're listening and you haven't read the book and we're intending to, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't spoil it, but that decision, um, whether or not he will be able to save others, that definitely has an impact on how he approaches Mm -hmm. his own decision. And I, I did think that was very interesting. It's worth, it's worth the read, Rishika, just so that um, we can all talk about it once you've read it, because Carrie has read it too. So Yes. Okay. And it is fantastic. Man, Anne-Marie, did you actually plan to finish Silence right as we were talking about the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas? I would say it's, it was providential. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Because they really could be really interesting conversation partners because there is that deep question of being, being forced to, you know, a challenge to your faith, mm-hmm. but one that involves not just avoiding martyrdom oneself, but what happens if other people are being tortured and you're asked to recant and how does that change the conversation? Right. And the other big contrast I would point out um, is that in the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas, there is a clear sense of God's presence the entire way through. And part of the reason that the book is called Silence is because the priest does not have necessarily that clear and abiding sense of God's voice in his experience. So that's a very interesting contrast as well. Mm-hmm. I would just say. Yeah. An ideal um, podcast going forward could be a conversation about these two texts with Marian Larson involved as well, since I think she's the one who got you and me to read that book. <laughs> oh, true. <laughs> So true. So now, Ruchika, you just need to make sure that's on your Christmas list. So uh, if all of Ruchika's family members are listening, um, Ruchika needs the book <laughs> Silence by Endo for Christmas so that 
my life is better. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, sounds like a good plan. All right. Well, speaking of books for fun, Rishika, what is on your nightstand these days? is on my nightstand. I'm sort of in between a couple things. I can't seem to get through anything, apparently. Um, I'm reading The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, um, who also wrote uh, The Remains of the Day and um, Never Let Me Go. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. I like it a lot. I like the way he writes. It's, it takes place in um, Britain in the 6th century. Mm. And um, the one problem I'm having with it is it's not a book that's easy to pick up and put down. You kind of just need to sit there and read it. And every time I pick it up again, I need a minute to get back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's about this, this older couple that's traveling from one village to the next and um, sort of post Arthurian appears to be, there's some references to Arthur and his knights. And then there's a little bit of a mystery involved in it because People keep forgetting things, and there's a little bit of a mystery as to um, why these villages are so separate from each other. So hmm. that sounds intriguing. I was just thinking the same thing, Carrie Puffley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On, on a much more frivolous note, I'm also rereading Erin um, Morgenstern, The Starless Sea. I'm not familiar with that. Um, so she, her first book is The Night Circus, which is absolutely amazing and lovely um it's sort of dueling magicians and uh, and a circus um and it's it's quite enchanting um so this is her her sophomore novel and it's um really interesting it's kind of impressionistic it's about bookkeepers and fate and time and um mysteries and doorways that lead you into other realms it's very interesting i could be led to a different time right now i'm (laughs) good carrie what's on your nightstand so i'm like rushika having some trouble focusing well enough in these times to to get through anything so i'm still slowly making it through although white white fragility which is on my nightstand is a much easier read so you really can pick it up and then put it back down and it's fine and then a little bit more slowly through still good old ulysses oh wow mm-hmm. and are you how are you it's so long that it just takes a while to get through i assume you've got a major celebration planned for the conclusion of that read i should i should try to plan that for bloomsday Mm-hmm. Um, which is the the sort of the celebration of that day when Bloom went wandering. So if, if I, I I need to be very um, cognizant of that and intentional and make that happen and do some sort of celebration. Very good for sure. Sam can join me, our our, our wonderful producer. Yes, and he will. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Anne Marie? What's on your nightstand? Well, my cousin Greg recommended a fairly massive. I don't, it's like a family biography of the Mitford sisters. So this was a very odd family and there were, I think, five, six sisters and a brother in this family. And they were, um, many of them, fairly well-known English authors. So, um, and then of course, one of them ends up 
being a fascist apparently, but I'm not to that part of that story. No, there are pictures of her in the book with Hitler. So there's, there's that. And so the author is Mary Lovell um, and uh, curious sort of aristocratic English family Hmm. writing stories, I guess, in the 20th century. So very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's our time for today. You've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.